Terrible crimes, terrible rulers and terrible dilemmas for the Russian elite. Yes, it's time for another brief and unedited rumination on three issues relating to the current war in Ukraine. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Much as I would dearly, dearly love not to have to be talking about this, there's nothing else really to begin with other than the ghastly unfolding situation in Bucha, the Kiev suburb that has been recaptured from the Russians and bringing with it ample evidence of an indiscriminate orgy of violence, the murder of maybe 300, maybe more, maybe fewer, but anyway, at least, say, 300 civilians many of whom clearly were bound when they were shot. This was, not, after all, not war, this was execution. Now, inevitably, obviously, and frankly, understandably, people are drawing direct parallels with the Nazis and calling this genocide. Genocide implies a general policy that is imposed from above, and I don't actually think we, we yet have any kind of evidence of that. But let me absolutely stress this point. This is not in any way trying to exonerate what is clearly a war crime, as well as just a fundamental breach of just the most basic values of humanity. No, but it is to actually say, let's understand the extent to which this is not just a policy from above, but instead it is the malign concatenation of, on the one hand, Policies from above that absolutely have dehumanised or sought to dehumanise Ukrainians in the eyes of the Russians and especially Russian soldiers. That has precisely presented them as some kind of genocidal Nazis themselves, which carries with it this awful implication that somehow they are fair game, even if they are clearly civilians. So you have that coming from above as well as a series of policies which actually sort of encourage indiscipline and do nothing to penalise those who carry out these most awful attacks. I mean, let's be honest, if it's okay to bomb a maternity hospital, the implication is pretty much anything is fine. And that is combined with, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, I think, the indiscipline of the soldiers from below, both because of the nature of the Russian military system, but also the particular situation in which they find themselves. What this does mean, though, apart from obviously being horrific for the people involved, is a couple of basic points. First of all, the importance of the collection of evidence. And in part, this is about actually one day feeling that people responsible, which of course goes all the way up to Vladimir Putin, must be brought to justice if that is humanly possible. It may not be. It may not be, but we can at least work on the assumption that it is. Now, Russia is not 
uh, accepting of the authority of the International Criminal Court, which tries war crimes. It signed the, uh, what's it called, the Rome Statute, that's it, that sort of sets it up, but did not ratify it. It's worth noting that a lot of other countries have either signed but not ratified, like the United States, or just never signed at all, like China. Unfortunately, that is the situation. But if we can paraphrase a quote that is actually inaccurately ascribed to Trotsky, you may not be interested in the International Criminal Court, but the ICC may be interested in you. So I think we have to work on the assumption that at some point it will be possible to bring at least some of the people responsible to book. And that's one reason precisely to be very, very carefully assembling and accumulating all the evidence that is possible. Moreover, though, this is also about, I think, the basic uh, way of recognising those who died. It's not in any way that it sort of makes their deaths in any way more meaningful. These are senseless, horrific deaths. But nonetheless, it is about establishing what did happen. There, there is an importance in truth. There is an importance in giving witness to what happened. So that is also important itself. But I think we also have to recognise one other much more practical point about the conflict, is that this, and if, heaven forfend, there are any more such incidents, which unfortunately I don't think we can rule out, but this will actually make resolving the war by some kind of peace settlement even harder. After all, it will clearly and absolutely rightfully um, I wouldn't say tie Zelensky's hands, but certainly sort of create certain kind of political pressures upon him, which make it even harder to actually make deals with the Russians, the Russians who, after all, have been out there brutally murdering, as well as, you know, all kind of other horrific stories about rape and such like, but, you know, innocent U Ukrainians. The thought of actually sitting down, although on a purely rational level, one could say, yes, yes, but how many more lives would be saved? But human beings are not always rational. And it's not just how Zelensky and his negotiators will cope with this situation. It is also they have to think of their own political flanks. They have to think about what they can sell to the Ukrainian people. Remember, if, and I think this is frankly going to be a, prove to be a non-starter, but if there isn't going to be any kind of territorial deals, the idea is that that has to go to a referendum. Now, in part, I think it's precisely because Zelensky appreciates the degree to which it will be extraordinarily controversial after this war to be saying, oh, but we're still going to give the Russians Crimea and the People's Republics or whatever else. And a referendum is in some ways a way of ensuring mutual complicity of at least 51% of the Ukrainian population. But the point is, it becomes even harder. It also raises the whole question of how the Russians are going to try and extricate themselves from this. Everything that happens like this makes it even harder to, I mean, there's never going to be a forgive and forget moment. It's never going to be a return to the situation before the invasion, but even harder to contemplate some kind of modus vivendi, some kind of deal with the West, for example, that will see some sanctions relief or whatever else. Generally speaking, I mean, this, this is actually something that is not just uh, horrific for the people of Bucha, but it is actually a real step back from the peace process insofar as there was one. So what seems to have been behind this? Well, again, I mean, I think there's, there's nothing that looks at all methodical about this. It actually looks more about 
question of a massive and murderous breakdown of, indis- of discipline. And again, sorry I have to throw this in, but the usual caveat that does not in any way exonerate the higher-ups, whether we're talking generals all the way up to the president, for creating this situation and turning a blind eye to what's happening. But anyway, if it's about military and discipline, there was a, a very thoughtful and interesting uh, Twitter thread by the researcher Kirill Shamiev, in which he outlines many of the sort of systemic problems within the Russian military. Um, a great emphasis on that is you know, not just a patriotic mission, but also on obeying orders, that it, you know, it regards itself as a non-political institution, which is true. But you might say as part and parcel of that, does not therefore think about the, the values behind it, the right and wrong of orders. It's about you obey orders and that's a good thing. That's combined with a very toxic command culture, a series of um, measures that also mean that things like you have overburdened officers with a relatively limited uh, non-commissioned officer corps who aren't really able to command properly and rely on all kinds of implicit deals with their own men, whether it's turning a blind eye to the exceedingly violent uh, hazing and bullying culture known as Djedovshina, grandfatherism, or whether it's just simply relying also on summary punishments instead of going through formal military discipline. For all these reasons, it creates a very sort of violent culture. I mean, it might sound silly within the military, a violent culture within the military, but there is a difference between the violence that you are meant to deploy as a professional soldier and violence within the the military culture itself. And all of this makes it very, very hard to actually change the military culture whether from above or from, from below. And you know, that, that inevitably manifests itself in how not just soldiers deal with each other, but how they deal with everyone else. I think I would add to this, and I wrote something about this before the, the, the Bucha massacre came to light, for the Moscow Times, in which I just sort of drew on just some of my own experiences of talking to veterans of the Soviet war in Afghanistan, which I think actually, if anything, uh, is even more relevant now. And in particular, I think this is, this is what happens when an army such as the one that, that Shamiev was describing finds itself in a situation where it is scared, where it is losing, and it feels that it's losing. It's angry. It anyway dehumanises the enemy, but it has all the more reason to think of them as some kind of... How can I put this? That they're cheating by themselves themselves winning, and that therefore they, they lash out. They're seeking to kind of impose some kind of um, authority on a world that isn't going the way they're meant to be. Now look, on one level, none of this matters. It really doesn't matter why you pull the trigger and shoot uh, an innocent civilian who's already kneeling before you, hands bound behind his or her back. It's still abhorrent. There's no way of getting around the fact that there is absolutely no justification, nothing that can be said that can make it better. And unfortunately, I mean, and I wish I could think of something smart that could be done to improve the situation and make these um, awful calamities less likely. One could hardly ask the Ukrainians to stop fighting so well so that the Russians don't feel so under pressure. But perhaps, look, maybe this is just simply the way that someone like me can deal with such a a situation is precisely to try and think of it as a, a riddle to be solved and understood.
But the key thing is, this is a war crime. This needs to be registered. And someday, somehow, there needs to be some kind of restitution or, well, maybe there can't be restitution, but some kind of judgment. And that is something that is going to be hard and it's going to be long term. And the reason I'm stressing this one last time is because that's something that we're going to have to hold on to. Because remember, if there is any point, some kind of settlement, some kind of resolution, however ugly and partial it may be, the temptation will be on some part, some quarters, to basically begin to backpedal and more or less say, look, you know, basically what happens in Bucha stays in Bucha. That cannot be allowed. And even if it means that there needs to be some kind of centre that ident- tries to identify exactly which soldiers, which lieutenants, which captains, which majors, all the way up to which colonels and which generals were involved, and who at the time decided in Moscow to do nothing about it, these kind of things, just simply having the names, just simply feeling that the dead of Butcher were not just simply forgotten, their memories sacrificed in the name of some kind of geopolitical settlement. That, I think, is important. But anyway, I, sh- I shall stop there and move on. And I want to talk a bit about, well, Vladimir Putin. And a comparison that I've made in the past, um, I think there's actually a podcast, in which case I will uh, leave a link in the, the um, programme notes, but one that I think is actually becoming all the more salient. And that is between Vladimir Putin and Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan the Awesome, or Ivan the Dread, however you choose to translate Grozny. And the thing is this. In some ways, Ivan the Terrible gets a bad rep. I would suggest that there were two Ivans. There was the Ivan who, having had a really rough childhood in which he felt tremendously insecure, Um, where essentially he was running loose in the palace, having to filch food even to eat, while a succession of regents used his royal authority to their own advantage, which did certainly make him quite a a violent and uh, authoritarian figure. But nonetheless, the first part of his reign, first, let's, let's call it half, was actually strikingly successful. This was a period of Ivan the state builder. And so many of the institutions of the modern Russian state arguably can trace their heritage all the way back to Ivan's period. You know, if you look at, for example, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, its official history traces itself back to the ambassadors. Well, again, the best translation is hut. Um, But anyway, let's say the ambassador's office. That was the first attempt to try and set up some kind of institution of foreign affairs within Muscovy. Likewise, the Ministry of Internal Affairs can can be tracked back to the banditry office that that, uh, Ivan set up. So so for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, look, there's also the the standing army with with, with the Streltsy. There's all kind of other institutions, including positive ones. Not, it's not, it's not just about state power in a kind of forcible sense. It's also things like codifying laws that, that took place. So the first period of Ivan was, in its own tumultuous and often quite violent way, a period of state building. However, then, for a variety of reasons, 
in part probably the, the death of his wife that he believed was, was by poisoning and also the suggestion that he himself was becoming increasingly deranged because of the impact of uh, some bone disease that he was suffering which you know, brought him pain and severe constraints to his mo mobility. Basically Ivan went mad and the latter part of his reign was really Ivan the state breaker. You know, at one point, he sort of basically divided the, the, the country into two, his own Oprichnina, his own sort of separate little kingdom within a kingdom, from which his Oprichniki, his uh, sort of thuggish... Sometimes people call them a secret police force as if there were some kind of antecedents to the KGB and, and, and the FSB, but there was frankly nothing secret about them. Really, they were Ivan's personal army, considerably really made up of mercenaries who would sometimes at his orders and sometimes of their own initiative head out into the rest of the country generally raping pillaging and doing whatever they wanted even when he had reconstituted muscovy back in into one state i mean it is clear that that he was a by this point a, a pretty unhinged man who was exactly chewing away at the very foundations of the state that he had tried to build in his first period. And because he had already killed his son and heir by the time he died, and he, the, his other son was basically not really fit f for the uh, position of Tsar, it meant that his death essentially was followed by a period known as the Time of Troubles. Um, a period of dynastic, social and geopolitical crises um, that eventually led to the rise of the Romanov dynasty. But no, I, I'm not going to go into that. You can read more about it in my short history of Russia. Soon, I should add, to come out in a paperback version with a little coda linking what's going on at the moment to the historical trends. End of little commercial break. But anyway, let's, let's bring this also on to Putin. First of all, there is the continuing rumours, much more evident now, of him having had, or having still have, have serious medical issues. We've now got this investigation from uh, the organisation Project, which has identified a whole series of visits over recent years of not just a senior oncologist who specialises in thyroid cancer, but also a very senior ear, nose and throat specialist. And so there is a suggestion that maybe he had thyroid cancer. He could also have received um, steroids as part of the treatment, which people say explains why his face is looking quite puffy. And of course, raises the prospect that in part, some of the sort of reason rather deranged uh, affect and indeed his whole deranged invasion of Ukraine might even actually be a, a sort of roid rage war. Who knows? What this also, though, points to is a, a wider issue, a wider sense that you know, we do have a very different Putin. Whatever the reason, you know, whether it's age, whether it's the impact of just 22 years in, in power as an authoritarian dictator of any country would do this, whether it's because precisely of illness, a sense of impending mortality, treatment he's getting, whatever else... We do have a different Putin. And the interesting thing is, look, again, if one thinks at earlier Putin, say his first two presidential terms through the 2000s, these were periods which 
yes, were marked by all kinds of different forms of violence, whether we're talking about the Chechen war or whether we're talking about some murders or indeed the still unexplained and mysterious uh, apartment bombings that fortuitously happened just before his ascendance to the presidency, which helped consolidate this notion that Russia needed a strong man to protect it. So yes, there was this violence, but on the other hand, this was a real period of state building in so many different ways. And I don't just simply mean in terms of institutions. You know, obviously, it was about you know, bringing the state back after the anarchy of the 1990s, reasserting control over the oligarchs and the like. But also, I mean, this is a period of unprecedented enrichment and opportunity and in many ways freedom for a lot of ordinary Russians. Yes, they had freedom in the 1990s, but for many of them it was a freedom to go hungry and a freedom to try and work three jobs if they possibly could. Now they actually had not only considerable degrees of political latitude, but also a certain amount of you know, personal, human, economic freedom as well. If it ended there, I mean, frankly, Putin, for all his numerous flaws, would have, I think, gone down in history as a strikingly successful post-Soviet president. But then, of course, he didn't. He came back, and really from the first, from the protests that greeted him and his evident decision to crack down from the beginning, not least because he regards the protesters as some kind of fifth columnists, either organised by the West or, in other words, uh, somehow kind of instruments of, of, of Western subversion. But, you know, really since then, we have seen so much of the progress that had been accomplished in the first half of Putin's reign, being sacrificed. And that was even before the Ukrainian invasion. Now we see, I mean, at a ridiculously fast pace, everything is now being burnt away. Economic progress, human rights, the, the, the closing gap between state and society, you know, all of these things are being lost. So in so many ways, I think we're actually are seeing that uh, the Ivan the Terrible syndrome is playing itself out with Putin. And Putin is going to go down in history, like it or not, whatever happens. I mean, frankly, it, it can, I think it can only really get worse for him. But, you know, even now, whatever happens, it will be of a man who at one point looked like a state builder, but then absolutely became a state breaker. Of course, and this is the final point I want to look at, all this poses particular challenges for Russian people, but particularly the Russian elite. And when I say elite, I don't just simply mean the sort of two dozen people at the very top of the system, you know, but, but, but sort of the much wider sense of the elite. There was uh, an interesting article by a very good journalist, Farida Rustamova, on her substack. Uh, again, I'll, I'll leave a link in the programme notes in which he's very much pushing the notion that, in fact, what's happening is that there is a huge kind of rallying round the flag effect because of the current situation. That whether it's in terms of a population that is brainwashed by propaganda or by an, a, a, talking about an elite that really feels it has no, nowhere else to go, that essentially it has consolidated society behind Putin. Now, on the whole, I thought this was, this was a really interesting thesis and, and well-argued. I have some, some qualms, particularly about the sort of easy assumptions about the, the brainwashing of Russian society. Um, but nonetheless, I think it is absolutely true that we can see this, this sort of reconsolidation of society. But I think we have, should note the extent to which this is about pragmatism rather than belief. 
I don't think there are any or many Putinists. Certainly not these days, if there ever really were. People are now backing the regime, in part because of a pragmatic understanding that it's, there's no real scope for, for, for loyal opposition these days. Putin has made it very, very clear that you're either with the state or you are an enemy of the state. And the latter is not a comfortable place to be. Or, on the other hand, it is a backlash to uh, a genuine sense that the West has decided to, that it has it in for Russians. Western pressure, absolutely, through sanctions as well as through the sort of the wider information campaign, does help Putin insofar as it is uh, perceived as being anti-Russian. And I think this is one of the, the awful conundrums. You know, things like sanctions and such like, there is almost no way of calibrating them so that they do not hit ordinary Russians. Now, I think we should frankly be a little bit more aware of the desire to try and ensure that we hit the state system and not ordinary Russians. But, you know, there's a limit to what can be done. This is war, after all, economic war. And of course, you know, that, that does tend to lead, certainly in the immediate um, flush of the moment, to a backlash. But at the same time, I would say that we shouldn't overplay this. That frankly, a system like this, to put it very sort of crudely, is strong until it's not. It will probably look impervious and then suddenly break. Why? Because precisely the people within it are opportunists. They are loyal because they calibrate that that is the wisest, the safest thing to, to be and to do, rather than because they are genuinely loyalist. And therefore what happens is precisely that as soon as it looks as if things are going to change, as soon as it begins to see that whether it's because of some black swan event, whether it's because of some kind of revolt, whether it's because of particular large protests in the streets and the National Guard being unwilling to resist, because Putin's ill, whatever, the point at which some of them start to think, mm, no, I actually need to be on the other side, that creates momentum that, that will probably move very, very quickly. So I think we have to recognise that while absolutely at present Russian society does look as if it is rallying behind Putin and Putin's war, we shouldn't assume that either A, that is entirely genuine, B, that is entirely lasting, and C, that cannot coexist with a constant sense of, well, let me recalibrate today and then tomorrow and think, and that maybe at some point I will want to have a different opinion. Remember, Putin himself, after all, was clearly traumatised by the experience of East Germany. And if one looks there as well as in other of the, the Warsaw Pact states in particular, it's really quite striking just how fast what may otherwise seem to be a ruthless, effective and dominant system can actually collapse when people suddenly realise that the wind has changed. So there you go. It's a kind of optimistic way to end what is otherwise, frankly, I apologise for it, but it's unavoidable, a really deeply depressing Another really deeply depressing podcast. But still, thank you for your attention. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, 
at Mark Galliotti or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Stop, stop, stop,